is Jewish American Heritage Month. Join me as I review a little bit of the history of Jewish immigration to the United States. Welcome to Community of Strangers. This is Luis. For this episode, I'd like to tell you a story of some Jewish refugees who yearned for a better life in America. But first, let me take you on a walk down a memory lane. And I warn you that it may not be the most fun. However, it'll be worth your time. Let's go. Jewish communities have been part of the American experience since colonial times. There is mention of the, in the historical records, first of individuals, then of groups of Jewish people who arrived in North America. The first Jewish-born person to set foot on North American soil was Joachim Gans in 1585. He was part of the first British attempt to colonize North America. He arrived in Roanoke Island along with a very diverse crew of more than 100 men that included French, Portuguese, Belgian, Irish, and Scottish men, as well as English soldiers and merchants. This group was financed by Sir Walter Raleigh, an English landlord. Then hunger and conflict with the indigenous population caused these first settlers, including Joachim Gans, returned to England the following year. Another Jewish individual named in the historical record is Elias Legardo. He arrived at Jamestown, Virginia on the ship Abigail in 1621. Then, in the year 1630, the Dutch captured Pernambuco in northeastern Brazil from the Portuguese, and they allowed Jewish settlement there. As a result, the Jews settled in Recife, the capital of Pernambuco. You might ask, what does the Dutch and Brazil have to do with the Jewish Americans? Well, in 1654, some 24 years after the Dutch had captured Pernambuco, the Portuguese recaptured Pernambuco from the Dutch, forcing the Jews to flee from there. In that same year, 1654, a boat with 23 Jews, mostly refugees from Brazil, arrives in what was at the time called New Amsterdam, North America, now the epicenter of the coronavirus in the U.S. Yes, New Amsterdam is now called New York City. On a side note, New Amsterdam back then was the capital of the Dutch colony of New Netherland, which had been established back in 1624. Well, in 1664, Forty years after it was founded, the British captured New Amsterdam and renamed it New York, in honor of the Duke of York, who organized the mission. When the British captured New Amsterdam, the Dutch and the English settlers lived together peacefully. You may be wondering, why didn't the Jews do the same thing and stay in Recife to, li to live peacefully with the Portuguese? Well, it, because the Portuguese were Catholic and the Jews, for good reason, feared the Holy Inquisition. 
the Holy Inquisition was a powerful office set up within the Catholic Church to root out and punish heresy and dissent. The Inquisition is infamous in the territories that the Spaniard conquistadors colonized in all of the Americas. Through the Inquisition, non-Catholics were persecuted, tortured, and ultimately killed because of their non-Catholic beliefs. So the Jews had good reason to fear the Portuguese, and that's what led them to flee Recife. This group of 23 Jews was the first known group of Jews who arrived in North America. By the early 1700s, there were between 200 to 300 Jews in the American colonies, according to the Library of Congress. In 1776, I hope you recognize this year, it's the year that the Americans won the Revolutionary War and declared independence from Great Britain. In this year, the Jewish population was between 1,000 to 2,500. In the 1820s, Jews from German lands start to arrive in the United States in substantial numbers. The English historian and author Paul Johnson stated in his book called A History of the Jews that there were 6,000 Jews in America in 1826 and that that number grew to 15,000 in 1840. At the time, it represented 0.09% of the total U.S. population. Then, in 1848, there begins a series of revolutions across Europe. These revolutions aim to remove the old monarchical structures and create independent nation-states. This political unrest causes an influx of Jews from German lands into the United States. On the eve of the Civil War in 1861, there were between 150,000 to 200,000 Jews in America. And they fought on both sides of the conflict. There were Jewish Americans who fought for the Confederacy and Jewish Americans who fought for the Union. Then in 1881... Pogroms start to happen in Russia. Pogrom is a word with Russian roots, and it refers to massacres of Jews, often with government collusion. The pogroms caused a massive migration of Eastern European Jews to America. This migration, along with the migration of Southern Europeans, who were mainly Italians, increased the anti-immigrant sentiment in America. By the year 1900, the Jewish population is estimated at between 938,000 to a little bit over 1 million, and it represented 1.39% of the total U.S. population. 1914 is when the First World War begins, and following the end of the war, immigration to the U.S. started to rebound and the anti-immigration sentiment, which had been alive for almost a century here, was on the rise once again. Up until this point, there had been two immigration bills that had been passed by the U.S. Congress. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which effectively ended Chinese immigration, and the Immigration Act of 1882, which imposed a duty of 50 cents 
per person for anyone that wanted to enter the U.S., except for the Chinese, which were completely excluded. In 1917, a new Immigration Act was passed by the Congress with overwhelming majority. This Immigration Act is better known as the Literacy Act because it aimed to restrict immigration by imposing literacy tests on immigrants. But it did more than that. It also barred immigrants from the Asia-Pacific zone. By 1920, the Jewish population is estimated at 3.3 to 3.6 million in the U.S. The following year, the emergency quota of 1921 happened, which was mainly in response to the large influx of Southern and Eastern Europeans. Who were the immigrants from Eastern Europe? Well, they were mainly Jews. The emergency quota of 1921 established the first numerical limits on the number of immigrants who could enter the U.S. The limit was set at 3% of the number of residents from that same country who were already living in the U.S. And they used census data from 1910 to determine that quota. This meant that people from northern European countries had a higher quota and therefore were more likely to be admitted to the U.S. than people from Eastern or Southern Europe. Three years later, the Immigration Act of 1924, also known as the National Origins Act, was passed, which made the quota stricter and permanent. The quota was reduced to only 2%, and this time they used the census data of 1890 as opposed to the census data of 1910 to determine the quota. In order to execute this, the visa system that we still use to this day was implemented for the first time. As I've stated before, this Immigration Act of 1924 was aiming to restrict the entry of people from Southern and Eastern Europe. The anti-immigrant sentiment was very much alive in the early 20th century. Now, let me take you to the Germany of the 1930s for a moment so that the story that I'm about to tell you will make more sense. In March of 1933, Adolf Hitler rises to power in Germany. And that's when things get infinitely more complicated for the Jews. April 1st of 1933 was declared by Hitler a national boycott of Jewish businesses. This was the first clear sign of what was coming for the Jews under Nazi rule. On April 7th of 1933, the law for the restoration of the professional civil service is passed in Germany. This meant Jews could not serve as teachers, professors, judges, or in other government positions. Later, similar laws were passed which affected lawyers, doctors, tax consultants, musicians, notaries, etc. It's in this year of 1933 that a guy by the name of Albert Einstein, of Jewish background, resigned his position in the Prussian Academy in Berlin and resettled in the U.S. In 1935, Nuremberg laws were enacted which deprived the Jews of the, their civil rights. These were anti-Semitic and plain racist laws. Among other things, these laws made it illegal for a German to marry a Jew, 
It stripped the Jews of German citizenship. In short, the Jews were declared enemies of the race-based German state. In March of 1938, Germany annexes Austria. This event escalated tensions in Europe. Then, in November of 1938, Kristallnacht happens. The Nazis torched synagogues, vandalized Jewish homes, schools, and businesses, and killed close to 100 Jews. In the aftermath of Kristallnacht, also called the Night of Broken Glass, some 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and sent to Nazi concentration camps. For many Jews, Kristallnacht was a clear signal to leave Europe. Although World War II had not yet begun, the groundwork for the Holocaust was already being laid in Germany. So this is the political environment that the Jews were facing in Europe. Now, this is the story that I want to share with you today. On May 13, 1939, the German transatlantic cruise liner St. Louis set sail from Hamburg, Germany, for Havana, Cuba, with its 937 passengers, almost all Jewish refugees, and they were trying to flee Nazi Germany. By the way, this is not the Cuba of Fidel Castro yet. In May, uh, in May of 1939, Castro was only 12 years old. The ship arrived in Havana on May 27th of 1939. The majority of the Jewish passengers had applied for U.S. visas and had planned to stay in Cuba only until they could enter the United States. Remember, by this time, the USA handles immigration through a quota system, so only a fixed number of people were allowed to enter the U.S. every year. The St. Louis passengers also had landing certificates and transit visas that had been issued by Cuban immigration officials. However, upon arrival, the Cuban government deemed most of those visas invalid and refused to let the passengers disembark. The Cuban government ultimately admitted 28 of the 937 passengers. 22 of them were Jewish and had valid U.S. visas. The remaining six were four Spanish citizens and two Cuban nationals who had valid entry documents. The other 908 passengers waited aboard for an entire week. As time passed, they became increasingly desperate. One passenger, Max Loy, slashed his wrist, jumped overboard, and was sedated by authorities before being admitted to a Havana hospital. When it became clear that Cuba was indifferent to their plight, the ship sailed toward Miami with its 907 remaining passengers. They were also rejected there. The passengers sent a cable to U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, but it was ignored. You see, because of the quota system that the U.S. had for immigrants, the Jewish refugees were not allowed in. A State Department official telegraphed the passengers, telling them that they, and I quote, 
must await your turns on the waiting list and qualify for and obtain immigration visas before you may be admissible into the United States. Close quote. Under this quota system, they potentially had to wait for several years before they were able to obtain an immigrant visa. The St. Louis refugees also applied to land in Canada, but they were rejected once more. On June 6, 24 days after the St. Louis had left Europe, it turned around to return to the old continent. It was escorted by a U.S. Coast Guard vessel on the lookout for desperate passengers who might jump off the ship. They wanted to make sure that you know nobody stayed. The ship did not return to Germany, however. Jewish organizations negotiated with four European governments to secure entry visas for the refugees. Great Britain took 288 passengers. The Netherlands admitted 181 passengers. Belgium took 214 passengers. And 224 passengers found at least temporary refuge in France. On September 1st of 1939... Germany invades Poland, and World War II begins. Of the 288 refugees admitted to Great Britain, all but one survived World War II. They were the lucky ones. Of the remaining 619 who returned to the old continent, 87 were able to emigrate to the U.S. before the Germans invaded Western Europe. The other 532 were trapped. Of those 532, 254 died in the Holocaust. 84 who had been in Belgium, 84 who had found refuge in Holland, and 86 who had been admitted to France. Just over half of these 532 who were not taken by Great Britain, which were a total of 278, survived the Holocaust. This tragic story of Jewish refugees who left Europe before the start of World War II and were sent back to be slaughtered should help us realize that immigration laws shouldn't be so black and white. When we use the law to see the world as black and white with no room for a gray area, we put a blindfold on our eyes that stops us from seeing beyond the law, and it robs us from the opportunity to deviate from it when it's warranted. Once again, my name is Luis, and this is Community of Strangers. Until next time. <music>